0: Good morning. Two small requests. Kick off your heels should you bizarrely be wearing them at this hour and grab yourself a pencil. All will be revealed a little later. But we start with money. Inflation soaring. Pay packets stretched to snapping point. And as the cost of living goes up, 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 so too does the political temperature
1: but look, we hear from Column, we hear from uh, Finnegale TDs, from FFL TDs that, they, you know, they want things to get worse before uh, they will intervene. Yeah, that is but just not true. Will, well, like, no, I'm sorry, fairness, Pierce. Fairness, Pierce, I listened okay, to let you let talk an awful lot of claptrap, let, let, but I'm, with, not, going respect,
2: say, I'm not going to allow you say... I'm not going to allow you say... That we, that I want things to get worse before that you just, intervene. Would you just but, withdraw that, Pierce? Well, because let that me, is let, not me true. let me
1: clarify that column. You, you will, will only interv- or withdraw it, please. Uh, let me clarify. You will you will only uh, intervene before the budget if things get worse. Uh, and that's, but the point. So let, that is clarified now. But the
0: point... oh yeah, because once you hear the words with respect, you know that there is trouble ahead. That was Sinn Féin's finance spokesperson, Pierce Stoherty, and Fine Gael's Colin Brophy, Minister of State in the Department of Foreign Affairs. And they duped it out with Clare on Wednesday.
1: You do not understand. For- Hundreds of thousands of people. Things are so bad that they're wondering not what's going to happen in four months when you decide to announce the budget, but what's going to happen in four days. How I'm going to meet the energy bill? How I'm going to pay for that family shopping? How I'm going to deal with the back to education costs? How I'm going to deal with inflation that's running at eight percent and I'm on a fixed income of social welfare, but the government has decided that they and that, that's why that, you, that you no don't say things like let's just take back to
2: education that the Susie grants are being increased, the thresholds are being increased. The government has arranged of measures which are out there already you know that we've spent over 2.4 billion in measures you know that we will continue to react but you see Let's be honest here. I mean, and fair dues to you, I mean, I know I worked with you for years on the Budget Committee. You're a very good, solid opposition finance spokesperson. No matter what the government says, you're just going to take it and say, right, and we'll do a bit more and we'll do it a bit earlier. It wouldn't matter what we said, you'd still come out with those lines of saying we have this magic tree of money and we have a solution.
0: A good, solid opposition finance spokesperson? Ouchy. But the rebuttal? Also ouchy.
2: You have a range of policies around taxation, as you know, in, in the business sector, which I think would be disastrous for a country.
1: Like what, Colm? Like what?
2: Well, Pierce we could go into a no, no, whole lot of how you, treat, what? Uh, how you would treat the corporate tax rate. Well, of course, it changes per week as to how you, treat, uh, how you treat the corporate <laughs> tax rate. But I mean, you know, you know damn see, well. I've heard you. We can quote see, you. We can quote you. This is the problem, It's not the problem, Pierce What the problem is, no. is when you get called out about the economic policies of Sinn Féin, which you should be willing to stand, Andover, you know damn well that if they were implemented, the real impact on our economy would be to drive out the multinationals, would be to effectively cause a situation where we were losing employment, and then if we don't have employment at the rates we have it at the moment, we can pay for virtually
1: nothing. See, mm-hmm. Claire, and that's the bit
2: you'll Claire, never talk about.
1: See, this is the problem with Column because the finnegal uh, well-resourced attack points on, on Sinn Féin didn't go into that detail for Column. So when I put it to Column, what does he mean? He he can't answer what, what uh, policy he uh, has. So let me finish, Colin. With respect, he he, he mentions corporation tax rates. We don't impro- We don't propose any increase in corporation tax rates. So like it, it's not That's your it's, current new one. No, that has been our position for about a quarter, uh, for about uh, fifteen years, Colin. Right, and everybody knows that, and it can be researched and fact checked or whatever. But the reality is this: this is again diversion. There are people listening to this show, and they're probably pulling their hair out at this point in time because they know, as the OECD has said, that this government, what and what they've done so far, has offered them little protection. They're hearing from the central bank, not from Sinn fein They're hearing from IFAC, They're hearing from the SRI that the government has scope to do something now. Now, Colm uh, takes this conversation down by talking about magic money trees. This government has benefited as a result of inflation and growth since the start of the year, by since the last budget, by two billion euro. Not not my figures, these are IFEX figures and they have returned 1 billion since the start of the year. So there is money, there is scope there to make further interventions. We are 6 billion euro better off than where we thought we would be at the last budget. That's just some of the macro figures. But what people want to hear is, I need an increase in my social welfare, I need support with rent, I need cost of living cash payments, I need the government to do something in childcare and yes, I need the government to take excise down on petrol and diesel to the maximum amount that that they're permissible by by the the European Union. The 2.4 billion package as you, all know, right. so As far you this mentioned year, earlier on, with more we're, to come.
0: We're coming to the end. <sighs> I think we're all coming to the end for that one. Puristarte and Colin Brophy, refereed by Claire. And across the water, strikes across the rail networks. And one trade union leader is causing ructions.
3: The government is saying that they are going to bring in agency workers. My question to you is, I'm guessing that your some of your members will still stay on the picket lines. What will they do if agency workers try to cross those
4: picket lines?
1: Well, we will picket them. What do you think we'll do? We run a picket line and we'll ask them not to go to work. Do you not know how a picket well, line works? What they do anyway?
3: I very much know how a picket line works. I'm much older than I look, uh, Mr Lynch. Uh, what, will we, what will picketing involve?
5: Well, you
1: can see what picketing involves. I can't believe this line of questioning. Picketing is standing outside the workplace to try and encourage people who want to go to work not to go to work. What else do you think it involves?
0: His name is Mick Lynch and he's General Secretary for the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, the RMT. And as Kay Burley on Sky News found out, he's a man to be reckoned with. Media consultant and former Sky News correspondent Enda Brady joined Sarah on Drive Time. Mick Lynch, quickly becoming a household name, what do we know about him?
6: Well, he's from an Irish working class London family, Irish background, used to be an electrician. And he's risen very prominently, as you can hear there, you know, very combative manner in terms of dealing with the media. He doesn't pull any punches whatsoever. And, I mean, Kay Burley is a tough cookie uh, to get embroiled in an argument with live on TV. And he came out on top. I mean, he's a fascinating character. He's gone from having, I would say, zero public profile. I mean, unless you're into unions and who leads which union, and very few people are here... In the space of 24 hours, he's become a household name. He's tre- mm. trending on social media, people wishing each other a, a happy Mick Lynch Day. He's everywhere. <laughs> and I think what Mick Lynch has really benefited from is the fact that no opposition politician in two years has managed to lay as much as a glove on Boris Johnson and his government. There's been a big vacuum in the market here for a stray talker to come along and start landing some punches. And mm. Mick Lynch is the hero.
0: That was Wednesday, but yesterday saw Punch land very firmly on Boris Johnson because the Tories are in trouble and all fingers are pointing his way.
7: Not a great morning for Boris Johnson over the serial in Rwanda, where he's attending a gathering of Commonwealth heads of government. He's presiding over the first double by-election loss for any government in 30 years. The biggest defeat in the party's electoral history. And this morning, the Conservative Party chairman, Oliver Dowden, resigned, saying someone must take responsibility.
0: Mm, Well, Mary got the view of Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University, London.
5: It strikes me that Boris Johnson has just simply lost the sheen that he used to have. Uh, he's no longer the, the Heineken politician that he used to be. And Conservative MPs really have to think if, if he's now more of a, a liability than an asset.
0: From yesterday's Morning Ireland. And yesterday afternoon, the news came through that the US Supreme Court had overturned the 1973 Roe versus Wade ruling that recognised a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. On drive time, Cormac spoke to Rachel Rabouche, law professor and interim dean of Temple University Beasley School of Law in Philadelphia.
8: What's your reaction to the ruling?
4: Um, I, you know, I'm I'm not surprised, but it is still stunning. Um, I was actually uh, having coffee with a friend when it when it came down, and um, I think lots of folks expected for this to be the outcome uh, with the leaked draft, but it's still it's, it's still pretty stunning that. Um, that Roe v. Wade is overturned,
8: mm-hmm. um, and it happened in 1973. So it's about 50 years that people have lived with that ruling, one way or another. The ramifications of the Supreme Court ruling are are swift, aren't they? Already,
4: they are. I think that you know, 26 states have said that they intend to criminalize abortion when abortion returns to the states, and some of those. Actions can happen immediately. Um, some, some of those laws will take 30 days, may take longer, but in some places, abortion is going to be illegal potentially as of today.
0: Law professor Rachel Reboucher from Drive Time. Well, after all of that, let's have a change of pace and maybe get our harry on.
6: What
7: does Harry mean to you? Oh God, I don't know where to start. <laughs> he's definitely like my comfort person. As in, if you're emotional or if you're happy,
1: he he kind of is an all-rounder. makes you feel better about everything, or makes you ha- happier. Oh, I definitely he's broken like the whole like toxic masculinity thing, because like, you know, he was covering Vogue wearing the dress, and then you saw other straight males wearing the dress. I think it's good, you know? Like, I like it, yeah. And the nail polish, those boys wearing nail
7: polish you now, because it's like he's wearing it, you know? His music just, you know, brings me happiness and like, Whenever I hear it it just makes me feel better if I'm having a bad day.
0: I just think he's a really kind person. <laughs> he seems like a very genuine person. Oh my god, everything. <laughs> like my whole year has been built up to this like day and just he just means so much. Like he is such like a light and like the way that like all the fans can be friends and stuff, it's just very comforting. I think he like allows people to express themselves because he's so like diverse in the way he dresses
9: and his shows, I think he's really an inspiration for a lot of people. Oh my god, I don't know, I've been a fan of him for like two years and he's just, I don't know, it makes me feel safe, (laughs) I don't know. He's just a warm hug.
0: What a great song! And that fox pop was from Ashling, who works on the Ray Darcy show. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Humour, humanity, and yes, horror linked two interviews with writers from Northern Ireland on Wednesday. First up, Michelle Gallen talked to Ryan about growing up in this border town.
10: Castle Dirk at one point was held the notorious title of being the most bombed small town in Europe um, after the Second World War, before the Bosnian War. So it was quite an intense atmosphere. You know, we were a Catholic family growing up in a former parochial house. There was everything about my childhood when I look back and it just yeah. feels really intense. There was a lot of things happening. There was a lot of love, but there was a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of fear at times.
11: Yeah. And do you think that follows you?
10: Um, yeah, I, 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 I definitely find that I'm trying, I, as an adult, particularly mm-hmm. now in my 40s, I've, I've been really trying to work on things like hypervigilance and perhaps when I'm in a situation, I'm always scanning for the threats. I'm always, Still. A, oh God, yeah, but I'm working on it. I am. But I'm, that
11: comes directly from your, your, your childhood, um, uh, being, being hypervigilant.
10: Well, you were kind of trained to be hypervigilant. It was something, you know, like my dad grew up having, you know, to check things Um, I I can remember being in school when somebody had um, the school had been evacuated because there was a hoax device or a device had been strapped to the school gates and I I can remember we'd been evacuated and the bomb squad had been called and I can remember you know that you were quite vigilant around that but then I can remember my dad thinking I think I recognise that school bag And I can remember watching my father walk up to what, you know, the British Army were treating as a full-on bomb and him realising that just somebody was a big cross that day and tied a school bag with a few bricks in it to the school gates, maybe to get a few hours off off school. But you know this kind of thing where you're looking at the humour but you're also going, is my daddy going to... Get exploded in front of me. <laughs> that kind of said. I'm on
11: edge just hearing that story. because yeah. I'm laughing and then I'm worried. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> like, that must be the emotion that you 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 know that sums up probably that stop go. Uh, of life as a,
0: as a young person that at the time. That push-pull yeah, between precisely. the kind
10: of humour and the horror and yeah. the sort of always that relief of Jesus well we got through that again that's great.
0: And her book Factory Girls features three young women who've just left school and are getting a summer job and the year is significant.
10: The summer of 1994 was a really intense one. I mean, I, when I think of 94, I'm, I'm remembering the Channel Tunnel had just been opened over right. in England. Do you know, exactly. do you remember this idea that you drive from England to France? Yeah. Um, love is all around. Do you remember when that yes. was? It just always on the radio. Yes. And down south here, you you's had Riverdance. Yes. And you had just won the Eurovision again. And that was the summer Ireland We're in the US World Cup Do you You're remember bringing it? me right back to I, it. I, I remember know, it well I,
11: <laughs> I, I'm actually in my head going Because I remember Watching Eurovision And and, yeah. and uh, Riverdance I remember being at home With the, my mom And some friends And the place was just a buzz Buzzing yeah. It was buzzing And, and, and talk of peace We are like, what? Yeah. yeah It was remarkable
10: And then in the north There was the talk of peace But we were all very cynical yeah, By this stage Of course we were Hardened by it yeah. And you know We were kind of to be honest, I was part of a, g- a generation that very much was bred for export. We're kind of Northern Irish beef. We were going to go to <laughs> we were going to go to America or London or wherever, yeah. but we were going to get out of town. Yeah, yeah. And um, I can remember that summer very much, kind of you know, like I didn't feel particularly safe that summer. There was a tit for tat paramilitary campaign going on. Like when everybody was celebrating Ireland's win in the US, in the U S in that famous Ray Houghton goal. I mean, that was the night the Loughlin Island. Happened. People were
11: watching the match in the pub. Uh, Shot in the back. It, it just horrible,
10: yeah.
0: horrible.
11: Yeah, as you say it. So again, it's that 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 sense of constant
0: contrasts. But despite all this, or maybe because of it, she's still writing about young women who want to have some fun and a good time.
10: I feel that you know, I, I I grew up with people who very much used humour as a coping mechanism. You, you would have some really dark times and, and dark events. And I feel that humour was always this sort of life boy that, that kind of kept you from sinking down yes. I, I very much grew up around that I don't think I invented this from out of nothing it, it's definitely observed and learned from the people around me and the book is hilarious you've got these girls who are literally you know worrying about fitting into their jeans rather than focusing on the fact that they may be subject to an ambush in a pub you know that kind of a thing the things that you, they have
11: to plow on don't you they? have to yeah, plow on yeah, and, yeah. And, and
10: and you know you, you, you can't live your life really worrying about something that might happen but if your jeans aren't doing up. That is certainly an emergency at a certain
0: point in time. Michelle Gallen with Ryan, And on the same day, similar territory when Derry Girls' Lisa McGee spoke to Ray.
12: Humour is one of the great coping mechanisms, isn't it?
4: It in is. Life. I think a lot about, about that and it, there's something about our sense of humour I think in Derry particularly that's I, I'm learning about this myself, you know, having written this show that, that maybe that was preparing people for the unpredictable if that makes sense, like if someone's um, always ripping you to shreds, like, or if, if you have to <laughs> be Slagging prepared yeah, to, yes, be sla- yeah. to be slagged off, yeah. um, your your defences are up. Yes. And there's something about that that's preparing you for unpredictable stuff. So it's
12: resilience, resilience I building. think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And Ray asked her about an interview she and her mother had recently given to the New Yorker magazine.
12: And and you shared stories that you, you hadn't shared before. Um, about growing up and your yeah. dad been was he kidnapped or held up he was, or something? He
4: was, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was, yeah, kidnapped. And um, I mean, I the reason I don't hadn't told that story before is I I thought it was a my story to tell kind yeah. of thing, you know. And um, every family in Northern Ireland was affected by what went on, and you know it's a small place. Um, so, but there's there, there's lots of things I. I've never talked about in the press um, but when when my mum was being interviewed it's absolutely you know her place to say those things because she was the one go- going through it i was a very small i think i was 5 or 6 at that time so, yeah
12: yeah but yeah. there's the, but and, and and again you you see you knock the you knock the comedy out of anything because you you describe in that interview how a house down the road from you uh, was occupied by <laughs> by the IRA to keep an eye on yeah. the British soldiers and, and yeah. you you were knocking in to say is Mary or Anne or something coming out yeah. to play and yeah. they were going go away, go away and
4: It was like a comedy sequence that yes, I went yes, up yeah. and was told to go away by the mum of the house and then my mum said why did you tell Lisa to go away and then my grandfather who was a real tough guy was going to go in and start and I think that the mum in that house was like I was just ready to cry if I had a seen another <laughs> member of There's your family such...
0: Why can't you come out to play? But this was how the interview ended.
12: On a serious note to finish, the other people talk about now the collective trauma of the Troubles uh, on on the people of Northern Ireland. How do you feel about that?
4: Yeah, it's something I think um, I'm I'm very interested in. I think it's something we haven't really even looked at properly yet. Mm. It's something I want to write about at some point as well. We, we were just so focused on stopping it for so yeah. long that we never, even like what, what I would call smaller things, which aren't small at all, but when you talk to people um, like my family, because they never, no one lost their life, People don't feel they have a right even to talk about anything else because the the other people, maybe their neighbours, you know, their Mm. friends, you know, had much more serious things happen to them. So there's all this stuff going on, all this guilt, you know, even survivor's guilt. There's lots of things going on that I think we really need to
12: To explore. As a yes, yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: Dairy
0: Girls writer Lisa McGee with Ray. On Sunday, Miriam chatted to Owen McCrae to mark 30 years of Make-A-Wish Ireland, the charity that tries to make lives better for children with life-threatening illness. And when Owen was 12, doctors found a tumour behind his eye and he faced into a year of treatment, including chemotherapy. And by the way, Owen's father is former DCU president and head of our vaccination programme in Ireland, Professor Brian McCraw, and he told Miriam where Make-A-Wish came in.
13: I, Owen mentioned the horrible uh, um, chemotherapy and we used to hate. it was every three weeks and it was a really toxic mixture and they put the purple bag over the drip and Owen would disappear from us kind of really drift away from us during all of that and for hours afterwards but one thing that happened every time was um, when he was coming out of the, the chemo he would ask for a particular tape his his older sister Eva had given him this tape of Rage Against the Machine and... Uh, he would ask for this and put on the headphones <laughs> it was possibly the last thing you'd imagine someone <laughs> would want but um, so I just kn- and we started talking to him about it and he had a great love for this guitarist Tom Morello and anyway so I contacted Make-A-Wish and they did their level best but they said look we have a process we have to speak to consultants, doctors and so on and um, uh, we would look sorry we just can't do it
0: but then a few weeks later Brian we got a call at work they were heading off to LA.
3: Just one random day, you came home from school and you came home and said Tom Morello wants us to come over and meet him. And I was just like, this is insane that this is happening. Yeah, lots of tears that night, I have to say. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, because it was just like, I didn't think it was ever going to happen.
0: And when they say make a wish, they don't lie. This was an extraordinary day and it started with the limo to the recording studio.
3: They had up on stage all the band's instruments and everything. And he was up on the stage. We opened the door and he just jumped straight down, came over and gave us all a hug. We chatted briefly and then he said, oh, come on up on stage. And we just both got two of his guitars and just started playing wow. all, all his songs for ages. And I had been playing his songs loads, so I was pretty good at it. So we could <laughs> play for ages. And um, my the family all were all sitting there on the couch watching us play all his famous songs. And then he said, come on now, we're... We've a few stops to make again, we didn't know what was what was happening next, so we hopped in the car with him and went down Sunset Boulevard to this uh, vegan cafe and we walked in and straight away, I clocked it. I could see there at one of the dining tables was the full band of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Rick Rubin, their producer and wow. uh, so we got <laughs> photos with them, hung out with them a bit and then Tom was like, "Come on out, we're on the clock back in the car and um, took us to another studio. Slash from Guns N' Roses <laughs> was recording an album with his new band so I like chatted to him for a while Then we hopped in the car again to another studio and in this, this time System of a Down were in that one um, practising for their upcoming tour um, and that, that was a really great one because they were actually really my sister's favourite band oh. so like that was she got loads of photos with them like that was like her Tom Morello was yeah. meeting them so that was great and then what did we
0: do after that? I'll tell you what you did. You got an invitation to their fancy dress Halloween party in the Hollywood Hills the very next night. Were you
9: pinching yourself at this thing? Yeah. Like you're 13.
3: Because I thought that that day that was the wish. Like that was it done. So then the next day we're going out to party in this rock star's house and I think my parents were real shocked too because they'd always heard me playing this music and probably stereotyped it as some rock star Mm. Troublemaker, but he was such a gent. Part of his house he had a, had a studio and there was people just having drinks and playing songs and I was playing with all of them as well so it was like a whole second wish day over again.
0: Can you imagine? That is amazing. But perhaps the nicest part of this story is that Tom Morello and Owen McCraw became friends. Quite good friends.
3: Th- that was 20 years ago and I was texting him yesterday. I wouldn't have time to tell you all the things that have happened over the 20 years but some of the things like he came to play at Oxygen Festival in Punchestown in 2008 i just finished my leave insert and uh, he had us on the side of the stage during that whole gig and I didn't know the crowd didn't know this but during one of the songs he left over to me out of view and gave me the guitar and I, <laughs> I played it during it so a lot, of, a lot of Rage Against the Machine fans got a raw deal during that <laughs> song and um, and another thing, a couple of years later from that, he invited us to his wedding in Italy and got me to read one of the prayers. There wasn't even a huge crowd at that, so that kind of struck a
0: chord with us that we knew how close he, he counted us as family members. Now, Owen is a doctor, a career path he says he wouldn't have chosen had it not been for his illness and the doctors who inspired him. And both he and his father believe that that whole experience contributed to Owen's recovery.
3: It's my opinion, I don't have scientific evidence for it, but that this was as important as my chemo, my surgery and my Mm. radiation therapy. It was also something to look forward to Mm. uh, and just a a positive kind of outlet when other things weren't great. You know, it was, yeah, so it's part of the
13: whole process.
7: You too, Brian, you think it was just a really important part of your young son's recovery.
13: No, I think so. I mean, as I say we'd be fairly hard nosed scientists and, mm. and look in terms of evidence, but I think certainly where, where there was darkness and fear and, and, and you know, this brought like hope mm. and, and positivity. and we saw the change in Owen and the spirit his spirits being raised, and then his ability to face what was ahead of him.
0: Something in my eye, back in a bit. Welcome back. <laughs>
2: Hey, bully in the alley. All she did was a dilly and a dally. Bully down in Shinbo now.
10: So
4: help me, Bob. I'm bully in the alley. Hey, hey, bully in the alley. Help me, Bob.
0: More folk recorded at Fastnet Sea Shanty Festival in Ballydehob, County Cork, from Seascapes last night. Bringing us to hot mess and rising sea levels. NUI Minutes Professor Peter Thorne is a leading climate scientist and on May 9th he went to government buildings to give a presentation to our politicians and policy makers about how our climate crisis is going to change our lives. And he gave Philip Hayes just a flavour of what he told them.
7: Sadly, there are some things that we do not stabilise quickly. There are things that respond over centuries. There are slow motion aspects of climate change that we have... Set in motion, we have no way of stopping that will carry on for centuries to millennia hence. And sea level rise is the biggest of those.
13: And at this point, he hit them with a map of Dublin under the five metres of sea level rise that is coming, regardless of what we do or don't do. The Hill of Hoth is an island. Dublin Bay now starts at Cabra on the north side and Donnybrook on the south side. Malahide, Port Marnock, Sutton, Clontarf, Ringsend, Ballsbridge, Blackrock, Monkstown, Dunleary, and Sandy Cove will all be gone. The River Liffey will now be hundreds of metres wide.
7: All of the Docklands has disappeared. There is no such thing as North Bull Island any longer. Uh, Water has come all the way up past the Guinness Factory, um, past Phoenix Park. So it's a very different Dublin that you would look, look at, and if you looked at other cities in Ireland, it would be much the same.
0: Well, that is one to stop you in your tracks. And another sobering reminder of just how precarious our existence is came from Doctor Shane Bergen, who came into Clare. Now he was talking about dinosaurs and the asteroid that hit the Earth, and as with so much of life, it's all about timing.
7: This asteroid, which was fourteen kilometres in diameter, that's the distance from the GPO to Dunleer. Mm-hmm. It smacked into the Earth in the Gulf of Mexico, in a shallow sea, in the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, um, research published recently from the University of Texas said if it had hit just a few minutes earlier, then it would have landed in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and it would have caused less devastation because it would have been more localised. So the um, the dinosaurs in the local area, from tsunamis and whatnot, they would have, have died out, but there wouldn't have been the global catastrophe. So what happened was it hit in the Yucatan Peninsula a huge amount of dust and activity resulted, there was no sun for a couple of years, so no, no plant life could survive. Everything that ate plants was in trouble, particularly the big things, and everything that ate the plant eaters was in trouble too, particularly again, the big things. This is why only little things survived. So if, if it had been a more localised event, um, a lot of paleontologists have said that, you know, there would have been nothing to knock the dinosaurs off the top spot, But lucky for us, because if the dinosaurs hadn't of hadn't been extinct, then mammals may not have gotten the chance that they did get. And so you and I mightn't be here talking. And and the chance,
4: the space as well.
7: Absolutely. Yeah. So Mm. it, it just, you know, it's it's the top dog kind of rules the roost until all of a sudden they're knocked off that position.
4: And staying
0: with the environment. Fast fashion. We all know at this point that it's a badden. But if you were getting rid of clothes, you might be only delighted with yourself if you give them to a charity clothes bank for less well-off countries. However, with the law of unintended consequences, it doesn't always benefit those countries. Here's Sally Hayden in Ghana for World Report.
9: Cantamanto Market in Ghanaian capital Accra is one of the biggest second-hand clothes markets in West Africa. In Ghana, these clothes are known as a wawu, or dead white man's clothes. Each week, around 15 million garments find their way here, many of which were originally donated to charity shops or put in recycling bins in Europe and North America. The clothes arrive in big bales, measured by their weight. A trader is not allowed look inside until he or she has purchased a bale. And sometimes they get a nasty shock Around 40% of everything that makes it to Ghana is clearly waste, local activists say. The quality has been getting steadily worse with the rise of fast fashion in the West. It's gambling. The goods have changed. The quality has changed, one trader told me. He has worked in the market for 15 years, like his mother before him. He pays more than 400 euro for each bale of what should be around 300 football jerseys. Some are torn or clearly fake and very poor quality. He can't sell them and throws them away. Chloe Assam, a 29 year old Ghanaian designer, called on Western consumers to stop purchasing new clothes and to try to be sustainable. I think there is a sense that Africans should be grateful with what they can get sometimes with clothes, Assam said. But no one is walking around naked. Instead, she calls on buyers in the West to hit a pause button and stop buying clothing that they don't need.
0: Sally Hayden from Ghana, as heard on World Report. On Monday, Ray spoke to Jessie Buckley, and she came into studio to sing along with Bernard Butler. But before they got to all that, Jessie told a story about welcoming a cropper when she was playing Sally Bowles in Cabaret.
12: On the first night, you fell off the stage.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I did, yeah.
12: (laughs) So, So you literally had to pick yourself up.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, I
10: hadn't been in theater for three years, you know, uh, because of the pandemic, and I got such a shock. Like, and we were in the round, so we were like being kind of the energy from the audience was so huge, and you know, it had been such a kind of intense process leading up to it that when I got up to do my my first song, I think I just I just fell off the stage. I got <laughs> I got such a shock. <laughs> I kept going. I, I got back up and. Um, then had a huge kind of panic attack at the end of the show but you know that stuff is good for you you know there's nothing worse that can actually
0: happen Right
12: yes (laughs) and it reminds you that you're alive and that you're
10: human
0: (laughs) Yes yes
12: which is hugely important
0: Indeed and she had a great studio session with Ray well worth a listen back if you like your music but staying on the issue of balance do you remember at the start of the programme we asked you to grab yourself a pencil and also kick off those heels Well, your time has come. Get yourselves up. Yes, come on. And just see if you can stand on one leg for the duration of this clip. It's 35 seconds, by the way.
5: So this was a Brazilian study where they looked at 1,700 men and women who were all aged uh, 51 to 75 at the beginning of the uh, test. And what they did is they wanted to see how long they could stand on one leg and uh, they basically timed them and then they followed them over um, about seven years and at the end of that period they looked at how many of them were still alive and what they found was that basically the people who couldn't stand uh, for longer than 10 seconds, uh, they were nearly twice as likely to have died over those seven years as the people who could manage more than 10 seconds standing on one leg.
0: How do you do? Are you clutching the fridge, falling over into the green bin? I do hope not, because that was Dr Michael Moseley. But for Ray Darcy, one question. Why? Thank you, lest we contort ourselves for no reason. It is the weekend after
5: all. They don't really know. Um, two possibilities. Um, one, the most likely one, is that your ability to stand on one leg is a kind of measure of your brain health, your muscle power, all sorts of things because just standing upright on two legs is pretty tricky. It took our ancestors a long time to master it. (laughs) Um, And standing on one leg is even trickier if anyone's attempted it. It's quite a balance of stuff going on in the brain. So it could be a, a good way of measuring the underlying health. But anyway, irrespective of that, I actually think that you should work on your sense of balance because we know that just falling over uh, is the second commonest cause of accidental death after car accidents. And after the age of 60 odd, uh, your sense of balance tends to go. So There's very much a case of use it or lose it.
0: But what if you did indeed fall over after only two seconds? Fret not, you can practice.
5: So so you
12: can work on it That's the thing and I'm saying I'm this is sort of public service broadcasting here, Michael. I'm saying, yes. uh, you know you can work on it. I'm, I've gone from fifteen seconds to a minute. you and you can't it's it's odd um because some mornings I just can't get it, you know, whatever's going on in my head or um and then some mornings you could stay there on one foot for for an hour.
0: Now you're just showing off. but if that's the heels out of the way, what about the pencil? Well, here it comes. Arthur C. Brooks is a Harvard professor, a New York Times bestseller, and a happiness columnist at The Atlantic. For yes, such a thing does exist. He spoke to Brendan.
8: 50% of our tendency to be happy is genetic. 25% is based on your circumstances, which don't last. And 25% is entirely based on your habits. And that's what everybody should be spending their time thinking about is okay. their happiness habits.
2: So the, the 50% genetic, is is, is that kind of like that old-fashioned notion that you, you're born with a certain temperament? Like are some of us just born like two gin and tonics behind everyone else <laughs> basically?
8: <laughs> yeah, your mother really did make you unhappy, literally yeah. <laughs> physically unhappy. Okay. So what, what do we find is based on, on studies of identical twins that were separated at birth. And raised by different families, so they have ge- their are genetic carbon copies. But they, it's an incredible experiment. If we don't do it on purpose; that'd be unethical. But when you reunite them at age forty and give them personality tests, you'll find that between forty and eighty percent of all their personality characteristics are are genetic. You know, their openness, their conscientiousness, their agreeableness, their neuroticism, you know, all of these things. But that's not deterministic. That's your proclivity. Then you've got switches. And if you know your genetic proclivities, then you can take behavioral switches. That's your habits. That's why it matters.
0: Ah, free reign to blame the parents. But back to our habits and what we need in our lives. He says, faith, family, friendships and communities. Loneliness will hurt. And by faith, he means something bigger than me, myself, and I.
8: When I say faith, for example, I'm a Roman Catholic. It's literally the most important thing in my life. But I have the data that shows that people who follow other kinds of faith, and even non-faith traditions, but they're transcendental. They're bigger than just my life, my job, my car, my money, my commute. I need the... The perspective and peace that comes from zooming out on my life, because otherwise my nose is pressed up against the glass all the time, I'm I'm going to be miserable. And so this is the key thing. Even atheists, they need to seriously take a philosophical view of life and answer the big why questions.
0: And one way to connect is a bit of an old chestnut. Get out of the house, join a club.
8: Joining an organization where you can be around other people, and part of the reason for that is that's where you're going to make real friendships, not deal friendships is you need to be someplace where people are not admiring you for your skills. And you're simply not trying to scratch each other's back professionally. That's when I say joining a club. You need to be around people where there's an interest in a third thing. Maybe you're building birdhouses together. Maybe you're soccer fans.
2: But socializing outside of where there's any transactional situation. It's very important that it's actually not professional.
0: And as he says himself, fake it till you make it.
8: Act nicely. We agree about. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely true. It's funny, you know. People think that if they're happy, they'll be nicer. No, no, no. If you're nicer, you'll be happier. And there's a big, okay, I like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it's the like people take the causality in the wrong direction all the time. Okay, so action first, and that will create absolutely. the mood. Daniel. Yeah? Oh, for sure. You know, it's an amazing.
0: Now, if you're sitting at the kitchen table, maybe in your underpants, looking at your glass, yes, it is half full, but filled with your own tears, take heart because Arthur C. Brooks did offer this wee hack. Yep, it's pencil time.
8: There's actually 19 human smiles. Only one of them is associated with true human happiness. I can tell if you're happy right now based on two tiny muscles called the zygomatic major muscle in your upper cheeks and the orbicularis oculi muscle to give you crow's feet in the corners of your eyes. Those are the only ones that, that are exercised in, in concert with true human happiness. Now, here's the interesting thing that makes the point that you just made. If you grip a pencil in your teeth sideways, in your molars, All right. bite down. There you go. You're doing it right now, to all our listeners Brent is actually biting a pencil right now that what's happening is you're involuntarily you're you're exercising the zygomatic major and orbicularis oculi muscles and if you do that for a couple more seconds I'm tricking myself
7: into being happy exactly
8: right because you're running the stimuli in the opposite direction your brain says he's happy for some reason
0: and there you have it just don't drop the pencil that is it from this week's playback thank you for listening talk to you next week